Oh yes, hello people in podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is Reeves Weidman and we are talking about the catastrophic downfall of WeWork. At one point, WeWork was one of the world's highest ever valued private companies. Now it's in free fall. So today, expect to learn why WeWork was so overvalued, where it got all its capital from, the fundamental flaw in the business model, how personality and charm can overcome objections, what we can learn from Silicon Valley's biggest failures, and much more. I've spent a fair bit of time learning about WeWork and Adam Newman, the ex-CEO over the last couple of years, and to get this, there's something so compelling about it. I really don't know what it is, but I hope that you find it as uh, interesting and enjoyable as I did. Don't forget, if you haven't picked up a copy of my Ultimate Life Hacks list yet, then what are you doing? Head to chriswillx.com slash lifehacks and you can get the free ebook today with over 200 ways that you can upgrade your life instantly. chriswillx.com slash lifehacks. You can download it before I finish doing this intro. It's linked in the show notes below. Go press the button and you'll also join my three-minute Monday newsletter where every Monday I upgrade your life in three minutes or less, including an insight from whatever I've been learning or thinking about that week, a preview of all of the upcoming podcast episodes, three lessons that I've discovered from the wild and wonderful world of the internet, and a life hack. Another one, sometimes a new one, sometimes revisiting an old one, chriswillex.com slash life hacks. Go and pick yourself up the free ebook and you'll get added to my three minute Monday newsletter. In other other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. If you do not have a VPN yet, then now is the time. Today is the day to go and get yourself one. It is so easy to protect your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. It's about one fifty per month, and it allows you to access the entire world's Netflix library, including everything which is in America, which is like pretty much every Marvel movie and tons of TV series and cartoons and all sorts of other stuff that you do not have access to anywhere else. And if you're in America, this deal also applies to you. Come and, come and watch what we've got on on British Netflix. We've got some good stuff on the British Netflix as well. Surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom for 83% off, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom, 83% off, three months free, and a 30-day, 30, 30-30-day money-back guarantee. So even if you don't like it, even if you think this isn't for me, which it will be, you can get your money back, no questions asked, in 30 days. Surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time to learn about the slow-motion car crash that was WeWork. What have you spent the last couple of years researching? Well, I've spent about the last year and a half researching WeWork, the company, and, and the last few years researching sort of the world of, I guess, high-growth unicorn startups um, is, is one way of, of uh, putting it, some of which um, have flamed out in one way or another, or, and some of which are, are still with us, so... Is WeWork classed as one of those unicorns? And what, what is a unicorn? For people that don't live in Silicon Valley, what's a unicorn? Sure, sure. Well, there's, there's, there's unicorns, there's zebras, there's all kinds of different species now. But, it, but a unicorn very um, simply is a, is a company that, according to private valuations set by private investors, is worth more than a billion dollars. Um, and you know there there are now um, certainly more than a hundred of of these um, uh, kinds of companies, and and WeWork, uh, despite all its troubles, remains one of those. Those companies that are unicorns are they still private, or have some of those transitioned to now be traded? Yeah, the 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 typical way it's sort of looked at is is these are um, you know they are magical creatures. They exist outside of the way the 
the markets traditionally treat these companies. So, so unicorns are, are generally companies that are that are private before um, before they hit the stock market. Which and then you, are you no longer a unicorn once you do? I you are, you're not. I don't know like what you transform into exactly in like the Silicon Valley nomenclature, Talk. but but you 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 yeah. It's it's sort of like caterpillar butterfly thing, but I don't know what the next like transformation is. Got you. If anyone understands the Pokemon game that is Silicon Valley <laughs> sufficiently well, what does the unicorn evolve? It's Charizard, isn't it? Charizard, Charizard and exactly. then you get the shiny one, and then that's everyone at school wants you cards. Well, you're you're joking, I, I think, but but <laughs> truthfully, there there is there is another group called a Decacorn. And a decacorn is uh, is an even rarer breed of company um, that has a private valuation above ten billion dollars. And WeWork was was um, uh, was one of those. I guess that is actually a qualification that the company has has now lost. Um, what? In, in, who who else is in that uh, category of your decacorn? Do you know? You know, I'd have to think. I mean, Airbnb is one that is um, is uh, sort of. Going public has said they're they're going public soon. Um, I think Palantir, which also went public recently, uh, is is another one that that would have classified. It's it's a pretty small group, and it and it has traditionally been kind of the biggest companies, the Ubers, the Lyfts, um, and and the WeWorks um, that that reach that kind of uh, threshold. Have you had a look at much to do with the electric scooter? Lime and Bird and and all of this. There was a period. Was it towards the start of last year where they were doubling their valuation every six weeks, like all of them? Yeah. Well, and here here in the U.S., they seem to find a new city um, to occupy uh, every every um, every few weeks. And and um, yeah, I mean, th- those are the kinds of companies that we're talking about. And I think one of them, I'm 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 forgetting exactly, but I think Bird may have at one point had a had a billion dollar valuation, which is, I mean, you know, if you want to kind of summarize the last decade, uh, a billion dollar scooter company that didn't <laughs> exist a few years ago is is. Which, by the way, I was I was recently in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and tried to get a bird scooter. I, I think technically I was trying to get a lime scooter going. There are birds, there are limes. There's like five or six different companies in all these cities, and I I could not could not get the app going. Could not get the scooter to stop chirping at me, and eventually um, eventually just gave up on it. So. Uh, it's unclear exactly what what the billion dollar valuation is is um is worth there's some executive from bird and lime screaming into their airpods at the moment going it was your fault this wasn't us this was we tested it till till the cows come home yeah well you know unfortunately uh the scooter is no good without the human um (laughs) human to get on it so uh i I guess maybe take the app back Back yeah. to the it's interesting with that just to sort of linger on that scooter thing for a second as well it really does show how decoupled valuation has come from marketability there are entire cities that have outlawed these scooters i think because it's san francisco had decided that they were going to permit one or two scooter companies at a time to trial because they didn't want overload it's like right Here's the six-week yeah. window where everyone can have a go on a lime. Here's the six-week window window where everyone can have a go on a bird. Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I I live in New York City where um, they um, they aren't allowed. And and it's been kind of a, a, a political back and forth of of do we want these these scooters you know cluttering up our our sidewalks? And and the battle we've had there recently, or sort of the back and forth, was. There, there's now multiple kinds of scooters. We have we have these scooters called Revels, which are, you know, you actually sit back. It's almost sort of like a Vespa, an electric Vespa. And um, several people have died. And and you know the the companies shut down for a while, but then they kind of brush it brush it off and and sort of continue continue expanding. So it is the the scooter wars are are sort of an interesting and and weird dynamic that's now in in pretty much every city at this point. I can see you or an equivalently talented writer coming up with a really interesting book about that in maybe 5 years once we have a little bit more story arc about all of this. Cuz it's such a like Pokémon Power Rangers battle of the sort of weird novelty 
uh, personal locomotion world. Yeah, right. And which one's going to win, you know? And and what's what's the difference between them? And and it is, I mean, it, you know, it's actually is something I've I've thought about. And I think one of the interesting things about a lot of these kinds of companies, some of the ones we're talking about, but the scooter ones specifically, is is these are Silicon Valley startups that are taking that kind of ethos and bringing it into like the real physical world. Like this is not a piece of software that just exists somewhere. This is suddenly there are scooters all over my city. And and there's good parts of that and there's bad parts of that. And you can argue both sides. I, despite the story I just told you, have enjoyed riding these scooters um, in, in other situations. And I, I think there there may be a very good argument for them. But but they do put these companies in kind of an interesting place that they weren't in 10 years ago, which is that Silicon Valley startups typically um, preferred to kind of choose to believe that the real world was sort of over there and and that they didn't necessarily have to think about how their whatever they were working on sort of what effect it had on the broader world beyond whatever they wanted to do. And now these companies are having to deal with city councils and politicians and local businesses. Real shit. Things. Yeah, real shit. And and <laughs> And I, I remember I, I, one of the first of these companies I wrote about was Uber back in 2017. And um, this was when Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, um, was, it was around the time that he was ousted from the company. Um, the company was going through all this, all this turmoil. I remember talking to an advisor who, who the company had hired, who, who sort of uh, his job was to kind of help uh, startups deal with politics. And he was so frustrated that all of these companies just wanted to believe that they could go into any of these cities, do whatever they want, because in their view, they were making it better and not realize that they're now part of an ecosystem. And, and that while there are great things about Uber, about scooters, about WeWork, um, you know, when you get into the physical world, you're suddenly dealing with more than just bits and, and data. So that's a lovely open loop into the story of WeWork, isn't it? Yeah. So where do we begin? What's the people who are listening don't have a clue what WeWork is. They've probably gone past them in the street, the sign, but maybe haven't realized. Give us the, the whatever it's called, the cliff notes on yeah. WeWork as a company. Well, well, in a, in a nice loop, the story really begins, I mean, given the era that we're in, it begins in the last recession. And it begins in, in kind of 2008 when um, Adam Newman, who was one of the co-founders of WeWork, along with Miguel McKelvey, an architect, um, long story short, got together and decided to, they wanted to bake, make what was basically an office leasing company. And, and they were both sort of had worked in, in small businesses. Miguel had worked at a small architecture firm. He had also worked at a tech startup before. Um, and Adam uh, had a few of his own businesses, um, and and they've been they've been written about before, uh, somewhat humorously. One of them was a a baby clothes business um, where the main feature of the product was that they had knee pads. Um, uh, the idea was that babies, when they crawl, their knees must hurt, um, even if they can't speak and and tell adults that that their knees hurt. Um, it didn't quite work, but it did become a real baby clothes business. Um, and, and he had tried a few other things. And, and so, you know, it, in sort of the depths of the recession in 2008, when, when you know, companies were, were crumbling, um, they started this business to, to lease, um, lease out, just basically take a space, cut it up into smaller pieces and lease it out to people. And, and it, it worked great. And, and there are all kinds of reasons that, that it worked great. They built a nice space. Uh, people at that time were looking for community. You were getting laid off from your job and maybe you were starting to freelance and you wanted a place to go, which I think we can all kind of empathize with with now, even though we're, we're sort of dealing with a, a different set of circumstances. Um, so that's that's sort of where the business began. And, and then from there, it, it, it grew, um, you know, pretty steadily and, and then eventually pretty exponentially. Um, to become a, a global office-based business, um, operating more or less under the same principles, um, that then morphed into other things. Um, it morphed into becoming a tech company or aspiring to become a tech company. Um, it morphed into becoming what what Adam liked to call a community company. That WeWork was not in the business of, of real estate, but they were in the business of of bringing people together. And and under that umbrella. 
the WeWork eventually had apartments, um, they had a gym, um, they had an elementary school, um, and all manner of other kind of business lines that, that were uh, eventually assembled under a mission statement that the company revealed at the beginning of last year, which is to elevate the world's consciousness. Um, which we can dive into what exactly that means. That's actually a question that I asked Adam Newman himself. Um, but that's that's sort of the the long story of the rise of WeWork, um, and and then you know uh, the 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 short or the short version, I guess. And the, and the short version of the fall is that the company tried to go public. Um, the stock market looked at a company that had all of those things that I just talked about that made some money, but also lost $2 billion um, in, in uh, 2018 alone um, and decided that this was not a, a good business, frankly, and, and that they didn't have faith in the business and, and sort of in, in pretty much the most spectacular kind of IPO failure anyone can remember. The company pulled its IPO. Um, Adam Newman was pushed out. Um, and uh, he is uh, sort of spending spending his days at the moment, um, well, uh, surfing and waiting for a payout and and seeing seeing kind of what what happens next. But that's the the short. short uh, that's the Cliff Notes versions of the the book I just wrote. Dude, I mean, I've watched before reading uh, your book. I'd watched a bunch of different videos that have been done on it. The guy's name is going to escape me. Australian dude, YouTuber, who does mm -hmm. some really great... Again, everyone's just going to be screaming down their AirPods at me. It'll come to me. <laughs> anyway, um, I noticed over the last two years or so, quite a lot of high-profile YouTubers who are interested in this sort of stuff documenting this slow-motion third-trimester car crash that <laughs> is the WeWork kind of downfall. Just before yeah. we go back, I want to get into Adam Newman because I think he's kind of the crux to all of this. What what actually happened with the IPO? Like, did do you need like a particular amount of interest before you go public? Why why was sure. it a failure? Yeah, well, you know, the, the public often thinks of IPOs of like, oh, am I am I going to invest in this and is this going to be the next Apple and it's is this going to pay for my kids' college education? Like an IPO is very specifically company needs money and they need to raise it. And in, in WeWork's case, they were trying to raise $3 billion. Um, and, you know, as part of these IPO roadshows, which is what all these companies are doing now, although they don't, they don't actually go on the road anymore, um, is they go around to investors, um, they give them uh, a document, it's called an S1. It's a document that's filed with the, the SEC in the United States. Um, and, and then they give them a presentation. They say, here's how our business works. Um, you know, they're supposed to sort of be honest and forthcoming about some of the potential problems. Um, and then investors have to decide, uh, whether or not they want to invest. And this is going to, this is going to institutions, some, a place like Fidelity that might be able to invest a billion dollars on its own if it wanted to into an IPO, um, of this size. And, and essentially what happened is, is for a variety of reasons, and, and we can talk about them, um, investors just, just decided that, that the, the company wasn't worth what it, what it said it was and, and there wasn't enough interest. And so um, eventually once, once it was clear WeWork wasn't going to be able to raise the $3 billion or at least that there was a danger um, that it wouldn't get there, uh, for a handful of reasons, they decided to, to pull it. Um, how would you describe Adam Newman as a person and a CEO? Two different questions, but but they are related. Um, charismatic, um, outgoing, very tall. Uh, he's six five, which which is um, often noted, but I think is not an insignificant thing for for someone like him, whose whose charm and charisma and personality and vision. Um, are, were what people were buying as much as they were buying sort of the the numbers that that were were behind um, behind the business. Um, as a CEO, um, you know, the thing people always talk about was that he is that that he was someone who could get into a room and and that might be a room with potential investors. Uh, it might be a room with a landlord he was trying to make a deal with. Um, and it, it might be a room with his employees and, and that he was able to convince them that what he was selling 
would become true, that, that this vision of, of WeWork as much more than an office leasing company um, was, was possible and, and, that, and that they were actually building that. And I think that was like, whatever people want to say about them, he was an incredibly inspirational leader. Um, and that went for young people who were straight out of college uh, as much as it did for sort of mid-career people who came in and 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 saw something to kind of latch onto. I mean, Billy McFarland from Fire Festival was a very charismatic and outgoing CEO. Mm-hmm. Indeed, and uh, for this book, I called Billy in prison. No um, way! Yeah, Fuck. and we we spoke uh, briefly. Um, just as coronavirus was, was sort of hitting in the spring. Um, so it was obviously a, a tense, tense moment for him. Um, and the reason I called him is that uh, he launched his companies from WeWork offices. He was a WeWork tenant. No um, and in fact, this sort of mild amount of news that, that we break in the book is, is that um, his company before the Firefest, before Fire, um, was called Magnesis, and Magnesis was a sort of credit card uh, club access kind of company, basically a, a lifestyle company. And at one point, um, Magnesis had a WeWork office in New York, and um, Billy had met Adam a number of times. He sort of talked to me about how, at least the way that he thinks of thought of his companies as as um, at least at their higher aspiration is connecting people. Um, he, he saw, he saw that vision in, in Adam and, and sort of what he was selling. And, and at one point we work in Magnesis were in talks, we work was in talks to buy Magnesis. It would sort of be the kind of lifestyle component to go along with the, we work work component. Um, unfortunately, uh, Billy and his company trashed a townhouse, uh, where they had a party in New York, the deal fell apart. And, um, uh, the rest is history in, in multiple ways, both Adam and Billy, went their separate directions and i guess in a certain way they they came back together in in the way that their stories ended a little bit but i wonder uh, what i would love to be a fly on the wall in a meeting between adam newman and billy mcfarland man did you ever see did you see that podcast between grant cardone and the real wolf of wall street oh i didn't okay well it's it's like a big dick measuring competition they get them out on the table and they start wiggling them around and then grant wiggles his and then wolf wall street wiggles here and it's just that and i imagine billy mcfarlane versus adam newman will yeah. be something similar yeah and i th- i think you know th- i mean i remember watching the fire festival documentaries which i devoured and and you know you watch at least for me i would watch billy and i would be like this is the guy that that was so charming and, and charismatic but then you know, and, and and in some ways, I had that feeling when when I met Adam, but um, of, of questioning this a little bit. But then I think it's hard to know when you sort of get into these rooms, and and people people also are incentivized to believe they they want you know people wanted the fire festival to happen, people wanted WeWork to change the world, to make it a better place. So so you know, it's it's easy to think sort of look at this sort of skeptically, but then I think when you get in the room, you know, there's a reason they they appeal to people. I think, I wonder if you agree, that the same compulsion we all have of why we watched the Fire Festival documentary and fell in love with that sort of thing where you're kind of watching through your hands mm-hmm. a little bit, like how you watch a horror movie, yeah. um, at a much more transparent and slower and significantly, in terms of capital, bigger scale, I think that's why we work has warranted a book written by yourself and all of these videos I've seen online with, you know, like hundreds of millions of plays and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Is that the, is that the, the primary um, pull, like the reason that people are compelled to look at WeWork? Yeah, I think there's, there's a, there's probably a variety of things. Uh, ja Rule plays a role in, in the WeWork story as well. So he is also that guy a, is know, everywhere. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. And I, I, um, you know, good for him. But uh, but I think there's I mean more seriously yeah like I mean I'd be curious to know why why sort of what you think um, makes the fire festival and, and we work especially interesting but for me it's you know one of it is 
is there's a certain comeuppance that that comes for people and and you know with with WeWork you know I would imagine um, as you sort of said at the top like a lot of your listeners, they probably knew what WeWork was. They 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 might have been to one or or at least had heard of it, but they didn't really pay much attention to it. And then same thing with the Firefest. Like most people didn't know what it was and, until kind of after it had blown up. And then and then in hindsight, you sort of see like uh, uh, like Jaw Rules there, and you tried to do this thing in in however many weeks, and of course this wasn't one going to work. And and so. I think it's it's it is fun and, and satisfying to and, and same thing with WeWork. You know, you've got this tall-haired guy who smokes a lot of weed and um, surfs a lot, um, who started an elementary school in an office leasing business. Of course, this this wasn't going to work. Um, and people were saying that along the way, and there were certainly people who, as they said that, once it happened, they they um, felt sort of um, rewarded for their their skepticism. And then I think for the rest of us, it's just kind of the enjoyment of watching a train wreck. Yeah, it it feels like um, vindication that someone has potentially got their comeuppance. I think that's that's part of it. I wonder whether companies like Fire Festival and WeWork are latent pressure release valves for all of our pent-up distrust and dislike of other unicorny companies that we think, like, holy shit, Calm, calm, mm. meditation at thumbtack, okay. thumbtack. Yeah. Are we being serious? Like, do you know what I mean? Like all of these, everybody knows the, the, the big lie of Silicon Valley at the moment is that companies are being sold on this limitless upside scalability, but not all of them are going to make it. And yet all of them are being invested in as if they are. And I think that particular instances like this are kind of the, the, um, sacrificial lamb to the slaughter that allows all of us to bestow our like distrust towards Silicon Valley generally. It just happens to have fallen on Adam Newman and uh, Thingy McFarlane's shoulders. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I I talked to a a guy who ran a company that was sort of competitive with WeWork in the early days, and and for a variety of reasons, you know, this guy's done fine for himself. His his business still exists. He's done great. He's very wealthy. Um, he didn't go on the kind of blitz-scaled, I'm going to take over the world path um, that Adam did. And and he talked to me about how, and this was, we spoke um, last spring for, when I was sort of reporting on the company before everything uh, fell apart in the spring of 2019. And he talked to me about how, you know, the reason he cared about this story was it felt like if Adam gets away with this, then like, what are the rules? Like, and, and what are the rules, frankly? And this is like from a diehard capitalist, like worked in finance, went to business school. He's like, he's like he was basically saying, what is capitalism good for? Um, if, if you can just kind of play fast and loose uh, with the rules, if the whole goal is to grow big, not worry about consequences, um, then, then maybe this whole system we've, we've set up like isn't, isn't actually as, as beneficial to society as as I would I would hope it would be, and that's that's not coming from Bernie Sanders. That's that's coming from a guy with an MBA. So. Yeah, one hundred percent, man. The last bastion that all capitalists, I'm one of them, have to stand at, like we will make our stand here, is supply and demand. It's the mm-hmm. fact that the market will reflect the demand for a product, and there's only so far that you can get on hype and clout and um just a charming guy in a meeting eventually you will run up against the market in and it is a immovable object and if mm-hmm. you're if you're not an unstoppable force the market's the market's gonna bum you um and it would appear that that's what's happened with we work so before we get onto the downward slope mm-hmm. can you lay the landscape of just how vast their operation was, and can we also talk about the amount of wealth and investment that they'd accrued, including that particular uh, Asian investor? Sure. Um, so, you know, by the by, twenty nineteen, by the spring of twenty nineteen, when I when I started reporting on on the company, I, I think, and this the first location opened in twenty ten um, in in Soho in in New York City. Uh, by twenty nineteen, they had more than four hundred. Uh, 30 plus countries, um, five different continents. Uh, they were just opening in Africa and in, in Johannesburg. 
um, hundreds of thousands of, of members, um, as they call them, not, not tenants. Um, and, and the reason, and, and by all accounts, as, as Adam Newman himself put it, um, uh, and, and, and probably accurately, uh, this was the fastest physical expansion by any company ever. And that's, that's probably true. He, he very coyly said that he wasn't sure uh, about Roman times and that there may have been uh, high growth startups in, in Roman times. Um, but uh, it, it, it grew incredibly fast. And the reason they were able to do that is because mainly on, on the one hand, and, and I think it's worth giving credit where it's due, they provided something that people wanted. Uh, WeWork offices were cool. Um, they had good coffee. You could meet cool people, flexible. If you wanted to get out next month, you could do it. You didn't have to sign a five, 10 year lease. There are all kinds of reasons that, that that's a problematic business model, but it was a thing that, that people wanted. The other thing, as you allude to, is that Adam Newman was extremely good at raising money. Um, and that started with him just kind of raising money from friends and family. Uh, the first big round of investment was from Benchmark, which is a big Silicon Valley firm. They were the earliest major investor in Uber, uh, big early investor in Instagram, um, and just kind of a classic Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Um, was a was a big question of why they were, exactly they were investing in this in this um, real estate company that was that was not a tech company like the ones they they typically invested in, but but once that happened, um, you went through a series of investors, kind of some some blue chip names, the JP Morgans, the Goldman Sachs um, of the world, um, eventually getting to this point in 2016, when WeWork has, has more or less tapped out most of the available sort of private money that you'd be able to get um, from from those banks in New York to the Silicon Valley firms. Um, they had recently scored an investment in China. Um, but then what happened is that Adam met Masayoshi San. Uh, and Masayoshi, or, or as he's known by pretty much everyone, uh, Masa, uh, is a Japanese businessman. He, he runs a tech conglomerate called SoftBank. Um, and SoftBank has a has a long history. He founded the company in in the 1980s. He's he's ridden various waves in the tech boom from you know selling CDs and CD-ROMs and floppy disks back when that's what you did, um, up through uh, doing a lot of work in getting broadband in Japan and and mobile technology. And and what he did in 2016 is he created this thing called the Vision Fund. Um, and the Vision Fund was a $100 billion uh, venture capital vehicle um, with various investors. The most significant one by far was the government of Saudi Arabia, which invested $45 billion of the $100 billion, um, <laughs> which, you know, invites all kinds of questions that, that we can talk about. But, but the upshot of it was that, you know, Saudi Arabia was trying to diversify its economy away from oil. Um, and Masa was someone who was known for taking big bets. He, he, that, that's what he's done throughout his, his career is being willing to take huge risks and frankly, in some cases, fall on his face and get back up and, and do it again. And so he had promised to Saudi Arabia, to some other entities, um, Apple, Foxconn were also investors um, in the fund that he was going to go out and find basically the companies of the future. He sort of talked about it as kind of building a new version of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, where you would have this kind of conglomerate of, of companies. And instead of it being airlines and newspapers and, and whatever else and trains, it was going to be tech companies and, and focused particularly on artificial intelligence. And Masa had become very sort of obsessed with the singularity and, and the idea that you would be, you know, hard, harder to d differentiate between humans and robots and all the consequences um, that, that would happen there. And he stumbled onto WeWork, and and um, there, again, as with Benchmark, there are all kinds of questions about why exactly SoftBank um, decided WeWork was a good investment um, as a firm that typically invests in, in tech companies. Um, but ultimately, uh, SoftBank invested initially more than four billion dollars, uh, which was more money than than WeWork had raised up to that point. Um, uh, back in 2017, 
um, and they followed that with another two billion dollars a year later, and that uh, was the money that really gave jet fuel to to WeWork's growth, and at least in hindsight, may have been sort of a, a, a sort of poison chalice is is one way to look at it. That obviously turning down something like that is is hard to do, um, but it it may have kind of push the, the company sort of over a cliff taking it on hastens the arrival of the inevitable exactly exactly and it's yeah it's 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 something you think you want um but <laughs> you know and again this this i come up with other companies i, I wrote about um it's hard to spend four billion dollars it's hard to do that responsibly um in in any way that kind of makes sense and and there's certain ways in which you know you can you can point out sort of individual managerial missteps but in some ways it's it's almost just a, an, an impossible task to do that in a way that that would that would really make sense. Wasn't it right that the Japanese investor, whose name I'm not going to try because I'm going to butcher it, wasn't it right that he decided to invest after 15 minutes of a meeting with Adam? Is that true? It, it, you know, it's 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 more or less true. Um, 28 minutes is what they say. Uh, Shit you know, to the bed. He, he, yeah, and and he is sort of known from known for doing that. You know, I talked to someone else who, who had a company that SoftBank invested in and, and, and that's basically what happened is, is he had a 10 minute meeting with Masa. Masa decided he wanted to invest. What, have, what of course is sort of left out of all these stories is after that decision, months and months of due diligence is, is done. But, but what Masa himself has, has said over and over is that often his feeling uh, in that first moment when he meets an, an entrepreneur, um, you know, his his most successful investment was he was one of the earliest investors in Alibaba, um, the sort of J uh, Chinese um, Amazon, and he made that investment. Um, he's often said just basically because he believed in Jack Ma, the the entrepreneur. He sort of he has sort of described it in these kind of like primal terms of of just a, a feeling that he had as as much as anything else. So. Um, you know, he's also said with the Vision Fund, uh, he's he's described his meeting with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the at the time soon to be Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, as uh, it took him 45 minutes to raise 45 billion dollars. Um, and so he clearly prides himself and in some ways lives on this reputation of I make gut calls and then and then I move on to the next one. That's mental. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like it's just. It sounds great, and it's wonderful in a book, and is cool when tweeted online, and harks to a, a, a man who has the vision, vision fund, a man who has the ability to see that which other people cannot. And you're like, mate, this isn't me trying to get the next motivational speaker to work in the HR department of your company. This is me doing very, very complicated, multifaceted financial products that require the the most clinical dissection to work out what the hell is going on. And you're doing it based on whether or not this person like I could send I could send one of the eighteen year olds that works for me in club promo, one of the event managers I've got, who are just brimming with testosterone and charisma send them in as the pretend someone of something and this so anyway i that i think lays the land quite nicely we've got the fact that this was huge growth that he had a lot of money behind him can you give the ele elevator pitch for how we work made its money like what the actual core of their money making operation was sure um, it's it was essentially a, a rent arbitrage. So the idea is, they um, would go to a landlord, uh, lease a building, um, or, or a floor of a building, um, and you know they would pay a certain amount of money to that landlord. Let's say it's a hundred bucks, um, and then they they would then slice that office into that office up into a um, hundred little offices. Um, Rented out to 100 people, and each rented out to them for a buck fifty. So then, you know, they're making um, 150 bucks. That's essentially the business. That's it. It's it's as simple as that, and it's it's frankly as old as time. Um, and and that was what was so confusing to people. Um, 
is that this is a business that existed before. Um, WeWork had made the offices cooler. Um, they had done an amazing job of branding, which is not insignificant. Um, but the idea of, of taking big spaces and, and cutting them up into smaller offices is something that it's happened all the time. Regis, which is a company based out of Europe, um, is, is sort of the most, most, prominent, um, most prominent example. And so that, that was kind of what was most confusing about people or two people who were skeptics of it is, is that's, that's a tough business and it's, it's a risky business because what happens, and, and we've seen this now, is when you hit, what happens when you hit a downturn? And, and I think, you know, if, if suddenly all 100 of your tenants or even 50 of your tenants leave, then you're underwater. Um, and, and if that happens at the scale that WeWork had grown, um, that's, that's going to be a problem. Um, and I think that's, you know, an, an underrated sort of part or maybe underconsidered part of the success of a lot of these unicorns over the past decade is that the economy did nothing but grow basically from the 2008 recession up until the, the pandemic that we're all experiencing. By and large, it was an upward trajectory. And so none of these companies had to deal with kind of what had, had fallen um, or, or deal with doing business in a, in a difficult climate. So, you know, WeWork tried to, to make money other ways. I mean, the apartment business didn't, didn't quite work. The, the elementary school wasn't, wasn't making money. You know, they tried to get people to pay for extra printing, but those are, those are marginal things. This is not like a software business where you're going to be selling more and more services, the more and more you get people on, on your business. Essentially, it just came down to renting out space for a certain amount and hoping you could lease it out to other people for, for more money. Me and you could do that. Me and you could, we I could mean, get whatever that nice apartment that you're in now with that painting of yeah. a very majestic castle is. <laughs> this is, this is a WeWork in uh, Austria. <laughs> like me and uh, you could do that. And this really is like the elephant in the room, the crux of the story that WeWork was positioning itself as a tech company. It was billing itself as a tech company. It was telling people it was a tech company, but it was the oldest of old time real estate. And it was just skimming off the top the difference between long lease versus short lease. And once you get below your minimum occupancy to hit break even point, which is inherently risky when you allow this hyper flexible one month minimum, no month minimum rolling contract bullshit, you are left yeah. holding 400 plus properties across six continents, all of which can't be occupied during a pandemic, which no one could foresee. But you certainly could foresee if there is ever a downturn, if there's ever a reason for people not to go to work or just generally a recession, our costs are going to go up and our income is going to completely disappear off the face of the earth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to go back to your point, like, yeah, you and I could run one of these spaces. There are people like you and me who do them. They don't run 400 of them, you know? And, and, and the, the, like, you know, I, I, you know, speaking for myself and, and others, you know, what Adam Newman had partly was, was the same and why he and, and Masa from SoftBank were, were sort of came so neatly together is, is a very high risk tolerance. And, and a willingness to sort of say, this doesn't totally make sense, but there's an argument for it. There's an argument that we could kind of make that, that, that this might work. And so, you know, there's, there's a very thin line between, between you know, the, the kinds of risks that pay off and, and the ones that ends up with you collapsing. And I think some of this just comes down to temperament. And we start the book with a quote from Adam Newman's high school driving instructor, who, um, you know, recognized in kind of just the way that he operated as a teenager, the, the thing that he said in, in a class in, in Israel where, where Adam grew up was, was Adam's either going to be a millionaire or he's going to jail. Like, those are the two options. There's no, like, nice, steady Adam Newman work his way up the ranks at, at some job. He was, he was a go big kind of person. And, and the question was going to be, um, you know, whether he, he, he ended up, uh, uh, being successful with that risk or, or falling on his face. Or both. Or both. I mean, and that's, that's sort of the, <laughs> the central irony here. And I think is a, a real central irony 
of, of a lot of this era. I mean, you can look around at, at other examples. I mean, I mean, Billy McFarlane's in prison. So, you know, he I, I think he 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 clearly has has fallen on his face. But but for Adam, um, he's rich. He's he's going to be wealthy um, for the rest of his life. Um, in theory, he has a billion dollar package that is currently tied up in in some legal maneuvering. But, um, you know, it, it, the, the risk paid off for him personally and and he's going to have some reputational sort of work to do but but the risk paid off take us through the downfall what happened and also it happened to be when you began reporting on them have you considered that uh i i I think that i played a very 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 small pivotal (laughs) but i showed up um a few days before adam went on his 40th birthday party um uh, around the world trip uh, it, that ended up in the Maldives. Um, he's a big surfer, as, as I've mentioned. And, and um, while they were there, this was in April of 2019, um, they uh, decided to go public. And and this had been a thing they had been kind of tossing around, but but didn't want to do. And Adam didn't want to do because if you're that sort of have that temperament, it's a lot easier to just be able to connect with Masa and say, we're going to go take this big risk. Once you become a public company, you have shareholders to, to report to. And, and, you know, you're going to have to explain why you're, why you're opening an elementary school. Um, and so from there, it was basically an extremely chaotic summer. Um, a lot of the companies you're seeing going public now, uh, the Airbnbs of the world, um, they've been preparing for this for a long time. Um, we work in, in certain ways had been, there had been an, an early pre masa moment where they considered going public and, and very fatefully, uh, decided not to. Um, but it was, it was a sprint and it was a sprint from April to the end of the summer, uh, when the company released, uh, what's called an S one. Um, and, and the S one is a document uh, is again, this document that you, you, you send to the SEC and it has, uh, all these, um, uh, all this information on, on how your business works, basically that, that is meant to give to investors. And sort of from the beginning, it was clear, you know, these documents are, are very boring documents. They are pages and pages of charts and graphs and, uh, disclosures in very small font, um, in the beginning, the very first page of, I've just looked it up so I could read it verbatim. Um, the very first page of WeWork's version of this said, uh, we dedicate this to the energy of we, greater than any of us, but inside each of us. Um, again, it's sort of, uh, you can ask lots of questions about what that, uh, that actually means. Um, but uh, the point is, if you're a financial investor and that's the first thing you you see, you're sort of like, huh? Um, and so, you know, then from there, it was it was a, a sort of shockingly quick um, turn of public opinion against the company. And again, some of that was people finding out about Adam and his quirks for the very first time, and sort of being like, what the heck is is going on here? What sort of quirks? Um, what's that? What sort of quirks? Um. The fact that he um, uh, he and his wife uh, Rebecca, who was also um, sort of came into the company later on as, as sort of a, 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 an executive and, and was sort of the driving force um, behind the company. Um, the fact that they had so much control was was one big thing, and so much control that that when they wanted to start an elementary school, they didn't really tell many people about it, and it just kind of happened. Um, and, and so some of it was just sort of the control that they had over the company. But if you want to talk about some of the weirder stuff, um, and, and some of it's not weird in a vac, you know, it's, uh, for one thing, Adam surfed a lot. Uh, that's okay. Lots of people like to surf a lot. Um, but WeWork was also invested in a wave pool company, a company that made one of these kind of inland surfing pools that are now becoming vaguely popular, but didn't seem to have anything to do with uh, WeWork's business. Um, it came out sort of, you know, was sort of an open secret that, that um, Adam smoked a lot of marijuana. Um, and that again, uh, in and of itself, um, not the strangest thing in the world, but when you have, uh, you know, the CEO of a, of a company sort of um, 
doing this as, as kind of regularly and openly as, as he seemed to be, um, it, it led people to uh, ask a lot of questions. Um, and then I think the, the, the main quirk, I guess, to circle back to the, that sort of uh, epigraph that I mentioned was just the way that he talked and, and the way that, that WeWork talked about what they were doing and the fact that they talked, they didn't, they, they just wouldn't state the obvious, which is we're a real estate company. They insisted <laughs> on saying, you know, we are elevating the world's consciousness, uh, that this is all about the energy of we and, and all of this stuff that, that I think on the one hand, I'm in favor of elevating the world's consciousness, whatever that may mean. Sounds um, the energy, Yeah, the energy of we sounds like a good thing. But I think at a certain point, it became clear to people that it, it purposefully or not, it was distracting. It was distracting from the main, the, the actual reality of, of what was going on, which was WeWork provides nice office space, but, you know, elevating the world's consciousness is, is not something that it, it does. Do you know the British term all talk and no trousers uh no but i can you can imagine what it means where it's going that's adam newman like um this is again the the corollary for adam is is uh i'll talk no shoes because he would walk around without wearing shoes how did i guess um i think that's another part of it it's not only the comeuppance of an an undeserved company overall but it's someone in the Adam position who, from the outside looking in, has a number of things that the, especially like the normal working class guy or girl would find pretty difficult to deal with. Spending a lot of time surfing, spending a lot of time smoking weed, decides to employ his wife probably on some ridiculous retainer package for someone who... I'm sure that she has many talents, but I bet that she's less qualified than many other people who could have got that job. Uh, and then this wrapping in 2020 awakened like Austin psychedelica language yeah. is is the icing on a very twatty cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, you know, getting calling people on hypocrisy is 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 almost tiresome because there's so much of it, but, but like the, you know, the Newman's, never gets old, man, never gets old. Yeah, I guess so. The, 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 the Newman's, you know, talked constantly about making the world a better place. They talked constantly about climate change and sustainability. Um, they flew all over the world on a private jet. They had seven homes, at least, um, new homes kept emerging as I, as I would continue doing this, this reporting, um, they lived a very lavish lifestyle. And, and again, it's, it's sort of, you know, I, I don't want to totally criticize that. I like having nice things, but you can't, you can't really have it both ways. You can't say I'm all I care about is literally Adam said, like, I want to change the world. That's all I care about. Well, no, clearly there, there are other things. And, very material things um, that, meanwhile, a lot of a lot of your employees, frankly, are are not getting to benefit from. Hundred so. percent. There's a couple of quotes. Uh, one in particular that I really liked: hyperbole, autocratic leadership, and a disconnect from reality were suddenly assets on the path to power. And that really, in a sentence, I think, highlights the um, growth at any costs or growth at by any means. Uh, obsession that we've got coming out of this sort of angel investment world from Silicon Valley. And I tweeted something today which said that the internet has permitted sociopaths and charlatans to con people at scale. Mm-hmm. And it really does feel like there's a a particular um, matrix framework that you would be able to create for these people, the Billy McFarlane's of this world, the Adam Newman's of this world, the uh, it was the it was Theranos lady Elizabeth Holmes, Oops, the Elizabeth Holmeses of this world. Like there is common threads between them all that weave them together into a particular type of person. And the scary thing is that all they needed was the right company. Like the key issue behind Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, from Adam. At Newman from WeWork and Billy McFarlane from Fire Festivals, their product was shit. Like, <laughs> fundamentally, 
their businesses did not work. Like specifically with Theranos. Like mm-hmm. you said it was going to do a thing and it didn't. At least Adam Newman actually had offices. They just weren't yep. financially sustainable and they were the um, minimum occupancy was too high and it was too risky. Uh, Billy McFarlane did not deliver a festival. Yeah. Elizabeth Holmes did not test your blood. Um, mm-hmm. But between them all, there's some common threads. So I want to get into the Theranos story just a little bit because it's just, it's sure. just fun. Um, before yeah. we do that, what are the lessons that you think the world should take away from the WeWork story? I've been thinking about this a lot, especially, you know, I, I started writing this book before um, the pandemic began. Um, and we are in an era where, for better or worse, a new world is going to be built. And and Adam, new, maybe not a new world, uh, new things are going to be built, um, frankly, more easily than, than they once were. Because, you know, as, as with the Adam Newman WeWork story, um, he built it out of the recession. It, it, it wouldn't have worked if he, if he had started at another point. He started it at the, this sort of trough when real estate prices were low and, and you could do something kind of different. And so we're, we're at the beginning of some kind of new cycle. And, and I think as, as I look back um, it, on, on this story and, and this era, trying to figure out the fine line between um, I guess to, to sort of take what you said, being being charming and being a charlatan is is a crucial sort of radar for for all of us to develop. And and I don't, you know, it's it's tricky to know which person is going to fall on on which kind of line. But I but I think you know we can look at this in our in our politics, um, in business, in everywhere. We've we've become more and more, I think, keen to follow kind of charismatic leaders um, and. There's no easy solution to to solving that, but I think being wary, I guess being wary of charisma um, and and thinking more about about the numbers and and the data behind anything is is something that we'd all would do well to to follow. I agree, man. It is the cult of personality is just so so strong, and yeah. um, I wonder how much social media has played into this. You know, like previously. People who were famous or talented or competent or whatever, um, they felt like so untouchable, you know? Yep. Like there were these angelic, symbolic, difficult to reach, barely human individuals that you would hear about or that people would go to a street parade to catch a glimpse of. And mm-hmm. now, like, I know what Kim Kardashian's dog's called because she uploads like 45. I mean, I obviously don't follow kim kardashian on instagram um, <laughs> but i imagine if i did i would know what her dog was called and it's okay if you do i think I, Reeves, you know, Reeves, i do. promise you i promise All you right. i i don't someone's gonna go and check but i i know i don't <laughs> um yeah we we have this desire for transparency and this cult of personality i think is being fed by the ability to see behind the curtain you know like president mm-hmm. of the united states man like he's tweeting all the time and I think it's thoroughly entertaining, but I think it's incredibly unpresidential. Um, and the fact that you have this ambassador for the personality uh, frontier being the most powerful man on the planet is that, well, if he can do it. Yeah. And I, you know, um, Adam Newman was very good friends with Jared Kushner. Um, they were, you know, both New York real estate people. Um, Adam Newman and Donald Trump were were New York real estate people, and it's it's not new that that you know this kind of bombast can can get you far. Um, it does feel as if it can get you farther than it once did. Um, that it's maybe a little a little easier to sort of pull the wool over people's eyes. And yeah, I think I think social media and and the way it it enables anyone to kind of um, build a global brand off of very little. Um, sometimes you can back that up. Uh, sometimes you can get by without having to back it up for a while, but eventually, at least that's what we'd like, we'd like to believe. Um, eventually there, there will be some consequences for it. And I think there was in the WeWork case. Um, we'll see in the president's case and, and in others, but, um, yeah, people get, I, I people, think that's certainly the case. They get found out, right? Um, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with social media is that you can scale clout in a way mm-hmm. that you never could before. Previously, to become famous, you had to do something, not just be someone. And the fact that you can be famous for just being someone, not like mm-hmm. Louis the Fourteenth, just be someone, not like dynasty wealth, uh, bourgeois living in some Baroque mansion somewhere, not that kind of be someone. I mean, like mm-hmm. just uh, reality TV. Spend six mm-hmm. weeks on the right TV program and come off and the entire country knows your name. Um, mm-hmm. Like that is fame for fame's sake, as opposed yeah. to fame for talent or capability or hard work or whatever's sake. Um, but as with many things that are hollow like that, when you come up against slightly tougher times or when you decide to actually stress test that fame, you find that it's incredibly hollow. And you're like, oh, actually, there's nothing in here. Like hit it with a yes. hammer and it cracks and splits yeah. everywhere. And you're like, oh, th- that was all it was. I thought that this was the Elon Musk. I am allowed to have this much bravado because of how much uh, gusto I've got behind me, how virtuous and, tr- and sort of uh, reliable this is. Uh, so I want to yeah. finish off on the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos story. If anyone doesn't know or is interested, if this um, – Slow motion car crash sounds interesting. First off, go and buy Billion Dollar Loser, LinkedIn show notes below, uh, the, the fantastic book that we've just been talking about. Um, but also on Amazon Prime, just search Theranos, T-H-E-R-A-N-O-S, and there's a really, really good documentary about it. What parallels can we draw from Adam Newman to Elizabeth Holmes? I, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying the one difference, which you hinted at earlier, is, is that, you know, we work worked. The, the business was there. It was a real thing. There were offices. Uh, people liked them. They paid money for them. Um, all, all of those things was was a very real difference. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, I started reporting on this just as I think that that documentary was coming out. And I was talking to WeWork employees and and they were suddenly feeling kind of nervous having watched this this Theranos documentary. And I think some of the similarities are, are obviously in, in the two leaders. Um, Elizabeth Holmes was, you know, became famous, uh, as, as you said, um, for, with, without having the real or any, anything real to sort of sort of back that up. Um, Adam had become this this a similar kind of figure. Um, you know, there there were there were things like the stratification of information. I mean, you you look at these two different two companies and you know, they, they, both of them kind of became so big so fast, you were kind of in your own corner and, and you assume that there are adults in the room. You assume <laughs> that there are kind of checks and balances going on, which is like what we all hope. I mean, that's the only way to like go through your day um, with, with some kind of healthy skepticism, but some kind of belief that that people are running the numbers. And and I think, you know, in both cases that uh, that failed um, failed people. And then, and then the checks and balances on that point, you know, it, it, a lot was made about with Theranos, there were no doctors on its, on its board. It was all kind of big names who had been kind of wooed by, by Elizabeth Holmes and, and charmed by her. And, and that was the case with Adam. It was kind of these finance people. There was not a real estate person on, on WeWork's board of directors, um, which, which was in some ways an intentional move. WeWork didn't want to be seen that way. And, um, and it's a lot easier to, to sort of pretend pretend that you're something else. The partitioning of information is really interesting. And it's yep. telling that that's how every secret service across the world works as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a convenient way to run an organization so long as someone is, is sort of making sure they're all working together. But when... When the danger is, of course, when like one one part of it, the organization isn't holding its weight, it could all kind of crumble. So, man, I uh, I, I really enjoy this story. I don't know what it is about it, and I wonder if the people listening get the same sort of satisfaction. I know that they do. Everyone listening yeah. gets this same come up and satisfaction, the calling out of hypocrisy, uh, yeah. and. A billion Dollar Loser, linked in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this story, then go and check it out. Any other things that people should check out online? Any other places you want to send them, Reeves? Um, you know, you, you can go to billiondollarloserbook.com, and that's that has kind of all the information about about where you can you can buy the book. And, and um, 
you know, I'm on I'm on Twitter and not really on Instagram, but uh, you can you can find all my my other thoughts on this and other things uh, on Twitter. So, peace. Thank I you. I don't follow much. Kim Kardashian either. And on that note, so you and I are the only two people in the world who don't follow Kim Kardashian, yeah. right? Sorry, Kim, but for now, ladies and gentlemen, I'll catch you next time. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget, you can get access to the entire world's Netflix library and secure your browsing online for less than £1.50 per month by going to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. Get yourself a VPN. It takes one minute to download and press the button and you can be started today. Also, if you haven't picked up a copy of my ultimate life hacks list yet, then head to chriswillx.com slash Life hacks, you will get the free ebook with over 200 ways that you can upgrade your life, and you will be added to my three minute Monday newsletter. That's chriswillx.com slash lifehacks. Peace.